Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams, and this is another episode of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, I know the last time that I did an episode was last week, and typically you're used to me doing an episode every three to five days, but again, don't get used to that. If it takes a week for me to get around to doing an episode, it's going to be a week. I doubt it's ever going to be longer than a week that you have to go between episodes. And also remember that this is going in cycles and is going in seasons. So first season, 13 episodes. Second season, more than likely 13 episodes. If something different happens, it might go to 22 episodes. Again, I'm treating it like something between what they do on Netflix and what they do on network television. Not necessarily what they do with the BBC, where they have like four, six, eight episode seasons. Occasionally, you have shows that have ten episode arcs, like what they do with Freeform a lot of the time, and what they just did with Cloak and Dagger, which is another case altogether. But yeah, this episode is interesting because I'll just talk about what I'm doing right now. And so um, the last thing that I did was I did a a piece that I wrote, which was, uh, it covered the summer of 1988. And that one took me, uh, particularly longer than I expected it originally to, to take. The research was about, you know, the, the normal amount of time, man hours that it takes for me to do, or to research a piece. But for some odd reason, when it came to writing it, I kept stumbling on more and more stuff during the actual writing process, which is something that doesn't typically happen. Usually I know exactly what I'm writing. I have it down. I'm doing it. And typically I don't run across more information as I'm writing it with. uh, So what I'm doing now is I'm in the process of going back and doing sequels. So last year I did the summer of 88. I mean, the summer of 87, a brief synopsis. This year, the summer of 1988, another brief synopsis. Last year, I did um, Independent as Fuck, 20 uh, essential independent underground rap albums. This year, I'm going to do Independent as Fuck 2, 25, because I feel like there were more albums it's like um in 1986 you had the albums that came out that you could talk about 87 there were more 88 there were even more 89 there were even more there's a progression so while 1997 was the year that the split really began and the underground began to really divide from the mainstream in the rap world and we had these crucial albums, these essential albums. And they ended up being classics, considered classics later. There were more of those in 1998 as there were in 97. Just like there were more in 87 than there were in 86. And there were more in 88 than there were in 87. There's a progression. So, Summer of 88, another brief synopsis. I just finished writing. I went through the whole gamut of everything. I covered video gaming, uh, pop culture, film, uh, comic books. Now, what took long, what took extra long with this one is that I realized that. So in Boston, I grew up near Chinatown. 
in Chinatown. I had a bunch of friends that were, you know, Chinese. Uh, they watched films and read comic books, kung fu comic books from uh, the combo company called Jade Men from overseas. The thing is that they were always in Chinese. And they read the opposite way of English. And they were usually 32 pages, full color, just eye-popping stuff, super violent. And I would be looking at them, and I'm like, yo, what's going on in this book? And they explained it to me, and I'm like, there's no way in hell that's what this book is about. And the covers were always fire. So what happened was, um, in July 1988... This dude, um, Tony Wong was his Americanized name. He decides he's going to expand and he's going to release his books in English in North America. Now, every issue was usually 32 pages. What he decided to do was take two, pa- two books of his, combine them together, flip the cells... Because the thing is, you read opposite way, so you flip the cells, and it's a quicker way of uh, reversing reversing things for your production. And then having somebody come and translate, and then having someone else fix the translation and write the best English approximation. Now, this is where the thing gets weird. When you have character names in Chinese... Whether it be Cantonese or Mandarin or the alternate versions, uh, approximate translation of those names doesn't really read well to the American audience. So sometimes you just have to make a fucking name up. So me reading Jade comic books began with, in English at least, began with uh, in July. Jademan released this thing called the Kung Fu Special. So they drop it. It has uh, three pages from the first issue of each book that's going to come out the next month. So in August, in following weeks, because, you know, there's four weeks in a month. They released a new book, new book, new book, new book. So by the time you get to the end of the month, you have all four Jademan titles. I feel like a lot of people thought that they were going to drop all four books on the same day, which would have been stupid. But anyway, so I figured out that happened at the last minute. This is how my brain works. I remember shit, and then all of a sudden, my memory floods back to me. If you ever watched That Soul Raven, this is how my fucking memory sometimes works. So as I'm writing this shit, I'm thinking, damn, I'm on the comic book section. Yo, what comic books came out in 88? I remember Akira number one. I remember The Tick came out at New England Comics. I remember that. I remember this. I remember, oh, Batman Occult number one. So I'm writing Batman Occult number one. And then all of a sudden it hit me. I was like, yo, when did we start reading them Jademan books? So I go to the closet. Again, I keep everything. And I go and I pull out the book. And I'm going and I'm going to the back. And I'm seeing that it just says, you know, 80, 88 or whatever on it. I'm just going through the back, through the back. I'm going through it. And then it hits me. Yo, this shit came out in July. And I remember the day I first saw it. And I remember the conversations I had. And I remember the games that were out. And I remember what was happening. I remember what was playing on the radio. I remember I was, in, I was still in um, 
my last days of uh of summer school. Then I remembered, oh shit, there's an ad in the back. So I go to the back and it says these four books are dropping in August 88. And I'm like, shit, I got to add this to the thing. Then at the same time, while I'm doing that, I'm remembering more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And I'm trying to finish this fucking piece so I could get on with the rest of my life. Now, at the same time, I know that when we get to uh, the next day, which is today, is August 8th, that everybody's going to be celebrating or trying to write about the anniversary of something. The problem is that a lot of people like to write about stuff and they don't remember it themselves. So August 8th is widely acknowledged as the 30th anniversary of Straight Outta Compton. Which is cool, but there's a problem. Because typically when we celebrate something, we remember it. And the fact of the matter is Straight Outta Compton came out and it didn't get any airplay. It didn't really get any video support. And it went close to six months before it even charted. If it actually did drop on August 8th. I know for a fact that it was out by the fall. I know that by September it was out. I definitely know it was out in September. I know not a lot of people were buying it. Because if you check the charts, and I've posted them on on Twitter, and for some odd reason, I don't know if I had anything to do with it, but uh, Billboard has stepped it up. So you can actually see the full black music chart all the way sometimes between 75 to 100 because you did uh, the top black albums chart, went to 75, and then it had another 25 uh, below it. The bubbling under and I feel like they added the bubbling under so you got your full 100 chart and that's a revelation because now I don't have to go to the fucking library to track down physical copies of old billboards to find this information even though I still have to because there's still some stuff in the in the billboards that they have written that they explain and they actually have release dates there that if anybody can't find it on Wikipedia or Googling, a good idea would be to go look for something physical. Go find an, a physical copy, whether it's in somebody's archive or collection or a library. If you really care about research, this is what you'll do. You'll be proactive. But anyway, uh, what I wanted to focus on more than that, because that's what everybody else is going to be focusing on, even though they have no fucking clue what was going on. And, it's, and it, just, it was just proven by me writing today that the album possibly came out on this date 30 years ago, but it took six months to debut on the charts. That would be insane. And also, I was going back and forth with um, John Book, who I know from... Um, okay player and John Book is like a human encyclopedia when it comes to music and he pointed out that for the most part he thinks that they just didn't track sales or they didn't put any real effort into it into tracking the sales over at um, 
ruthless because they had other things on their mind. For one thing, Supersonic by J.J. Fad is climbing up the charts, flying up the charts, and staying there. But that's because it was being distributed through a major label. So there's more money coming in from that. Then on the other side, Easy E's album, Easy Does It. Oh God, this is a this is a clusterfuck. So I see some release dates to say it came out September 13th, 1988. However, when you check the RIA website, which is something I have to point out to you, is can also be erroneous. It lists this release date as November 23rd, 1988, which doesn't make sense because it debuted on the charts on November 26th, 1988. An album can't debut on the charts three days after it's released that's not how the thing works you know as I explained it takes at least between 10 or 14 sales days before an album is eligible to show up on the charts so that's that's wrong and if you look at the release date that the RIAA has listed for um, Straight Outta Compton it says January 25th 1989 but if you look at the charts for summer 1988, the black music charts, which you can actually look up now, go on Billboard and do it. It's weird because N.W.A. and the Posse's album, which was originally released in 1987 on Macola, is climbing up the charts in the summer of 88. But their new album, Straight Outta Compton, is nowhere to be found. So, to recap, in late summer 1988, N.W.A. and the Posse re-enters the black music charts. It was released the year before, but it looks like it got re-released because I guess they switched from McCola to they got a new distributor with um, Ruthless, which I guess is Priority. And so they re-released the album. And John and John um, book did point this out that they re-released the album. It had a different cover. It had uh, different stuff on it, and it was covering certain members of the posse in the picture. So they re-released it, and it's looking like the August eighth date might actually be a mix-up. It might be the date for the re-release of um, N.W.A. and the Posse. Or they probably released N.W.A. and the Posse and Straight Outta Compton on the same day. Which is very likely. And we have to keep in mind that if an album doesn't have radio support or doesn't have a video, then chances are it's not going to sell that much. Or it's not going to sell enough to crack the top black albums charts. Even though it goes to 100 or 75. Depending on what you're looking at for instance on this date 30 years ago crown rulers dropped their album paper chase paper chase never charted i know it came out i've seen it i remember when it was out this month 30 years ago i remember hearing it before the school year started but it never charted it never sold well enough to show up on any charts it was never in in the in the jets in the jet part of the back of the magazine you know when it went through albums I don't remember any of that ever happening.
So that was just nuts. But when you look at an album like N.W.A.'s Straight Outta Compton, which is an iconic album that sold so many copies, you'd like to think that it took less time to catch on. So everybody's celebrating this album, talking about how well it did and everything else and stuff like that. But it looks like January 25th, 1989 might actually be the date that the clean version was released. Because when you check the RIA um, site, it says that the album was released on January 25th, 1989. I'm guessing that that was the date the clean version was finally released. And I... Not 100% sure, but it's looking like all the sales are tracking, really started tracking on that date as opposed to August 8th, 1988, which is just weird. So I'm going through the charts trying to figure things out, figure things out, and I'm seeing all these other albums pop up on the charts. I'm seeing uh, Finesse and Sinquis, the Soul Sisters, pop up. I'm seeing Latrim. Grab it pop up. I'm seeing uh, Raheem, the Vigilante pop up. I'm seeing Rodney O and Joe Cooley. I'm seeing Derek B. I'm seeing Steady B, Let the Hustlers Play. I'm seeing all these albums, Shy D, Coming Correct in 88 or something like that. Like all these albums. Oh, Busy B, Running Things. I'm just like, yo, Busy B was selling more records than NWA. I don't think so. There was just something weird going on with this whole thing. So it either had to be something where accounting, proper accounting wasn't happening. Because they were just so happy to be taking money from other places. You know, the NWA album is rising up the charts. And I can't understand why the NWA and the Posse album is first going, topping the top 50. Then it's in the top 40. Then it's in the top 35. And the new album's out, but it's nowhere to be found. And there's a hundred slots. A hundred. MC Hammer pops up out of nowhere. Let's get it started. Bam, he's up the charts. Uh, Super Lover Scene, Casting Over Right. Bam, down the charts. There, there. MC Light re-enters the charts, drops out, re-enters the charts. You know, Lonzo and the World Class Wrecking Crew are on the chart. You know, Sweet Tea. It's Tea Time is on the charts. The Real Roxanne is on the charts. And there's no NWA. Straight out of Compton, which is just weird. It just bothers me that these are the things that people people don't really pay attention to this stuff. And I feel like if you're going to write about Straight Outta Compton and talk about it, then I feel like that's one of the things you should have really, really researched the shit out of like how long it took for the album to actually catch on i think that's one of the best stories about um what happened with paula abdul paula abdul's forever your girl i've told the story took forever to you know finally climb up the charts finally catch on and then became the biggest album the following year like it just exploded and i feel like that's one of the things that happened with straight out of compton and if you're writing that story and that's not part of your angle then you didn't really research it you couldn't have and if you didn't research your piece, then why'd you write it? And it helps if you remember it. But if you don't remember it, then you have to compensate for that. And you have to put in extra work 
make up for the fact it's not something that comes to you naturally. It's something that you actually experience for yourself. Eh, but it's what it is. Uh, another thing that just passed was August 6th was the 30th anniversary of the um, YoM TV Raps debut episode, Fat Five Freddy on the the dope not the dope jams tour it was the runs runs house tour the runs house tour was run dmc public enemy jazzy jeff and the fresh prince that's who's on the first episode of yo tv raps later on they cover the dope jams tour and the dope jams tour was just bananas you know you got eric b and rock him you had bismarcky Ice tea, but eventually there was some violence. Of again, of course, there was violent incidents happened, and the whole like rap getting a bad rap thing happened again. And it's funny because that's what actually led to self destruction being made. And also, we're all in the same gang, which was the West Coast version. Because of the knock on um, rap. And also, KRS-One had a song called Stop the Violence on um, By Any Means Necessary. Which was the album that was released spring 1988. Either April 12th, 1988 or April 19th, 1988. But of course, somebody fucked up and thought it was came out May 31st. Which it couldn't have because I proved looking by the charts. That's not possible. Also, I did also today find out definitely the day that uh the jungle brothers entered the charts by accident and it turns out that yeah i was right it the latest date it could have been released was more than likely august 22nd 1988 the latest date i know for a fact that after i turned 13 after i turned 13 that would have been august 17th 1988 my brother had come back from mount vernon uh, with my dad and he went to a Nubian notion which was in Dudley Square and he bought with a friend and he bought um Jungle Brothers straight out the jungle on vinyl not on tape on vinyl and brought it back and played it my brothers my he played it and me and my brothers listened to it religiously brown 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 What's that? Hosa, 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 Hosa. Hosa, 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 Hosa. Like, we listened to that album so much. And the thing was that the sound quality wasn't even that great. I got it like that. Because I got it like that. They weren't super lyrical. It was just relax jb's on the run like that album is just so dope i'm gonna do you like that album is so relaxed and easy it's almost easy listening it's like you just listen to it you don't have to you don't do any extra thinking it's just a dope album to play in your car to ride to to just listen to doing anything and it's kind of kicked off a whole lot of stuff for the uh Native tongues. I mean, De La Soul had singles out at the time, but that album is the thing that like stamped it. 
The reason we needed to hear De La Soul's album was because we loved Jungle Brothers' album so much. The reason we needed to hear A Tribe Called Quest album is because we loved De La Soul's album so much. So, yeah. And then I think it kind of bled over into Queen Latifah, All Hail the Queen. Also, I like to point out that a big thing with Queen Latifah was, of course, um, DJ Mark the 45 King and the work that he did with the Flavor Unit. Uh, Lakim Shabazz. Marky Fresh, Lord Ali Bashki. Fucking Apache. It's all those guys, man. I know I fucked up and didn't mention Lati, which is insane. I think Lakim Shabazz is also uh, credited as MC Lakim on um Master of the Game, which wasn't credited as DJ Mark the 45 King, it was just the 45 King or 45 King. Yeah, that album came out summer 88, definitely. I think a lot of people slept on that one too. That's another album that didn't chart. So the thing about it is, sure, it's not crazy. It's very possible you could have released a, a rap album and not chart for six months or four months, four to six months. It, that happened a lot. You know, a single had to catch on to something. But it's insane that the album, uh, NWA album, would take that long, considering they had their hands in so many other projects that were selling, and they had an album that was actually flying up the charts. Their old album was flying up the charts. Well, their new album's like, um, we, it's the new album. Why, why aren't y'all buying a new album? I can't think of an incident in music where you could find an artist's old album outselling their new album and they have one on the market. I can't think of an instance like that. So that whole predicament is just weird. And somebody wasn't doing the paperwork properly. It's a lot of fuzzy math. A lot of shit going on. This is weird. So yeah, man. I've been doing a lot of research for articles I'm going to write later. I'm doing a lot of copy and stuff for voiceover work, commercials, things like that. I'm just doing a lot of writing, but it's not a lot of stuff that you guys are going to catch anytime soon. So I feel like that's one of the reasons why I wrote the piece about uh, Summer 88. And that's why I'm also working on um, the underground joint for uh, next month. Because I want to have something out there that people could read. Because that's what I do. I write. But the problem is due to the economic situation of this space, I have to use my writing skills in a different way in order to actually afford to live. I love nothing more than to do what I do, you know, 
all the time. But then I'd die. And I'd be homeless. And I don't think you guys want that. I know I don't. I like being able to live. I think it's cool. Another thing that's really killing me right now is um the stress or the you stress from the whole um Red Sox season. So right now the Red Sox are 80 and 34 through 114 games. I couldn't win that many games playing bases loaded and when you won 80 games and bases loaded you won the pennant and a lot of people didn't understand why that was the reason is because there's 132 games in Japan in America we play 162 so if you win 80 games chances are you're going to win the pennant in America you win 80 games that's a losing season But anyway, so the Red Sox are killing shit. They're they're winning games coming from behind in grand fashion. They swept the Yankees four straight. So that entire weekend was crazy. If you thought I was going to do a podcast during that weekend with that four-game series with the Yankees, then you are fucking delusional. I would have been so up. It would have... Like, I think uh, if you go back and you listen to the episode that I did after the, I think the Celtics were up 2 nothing. You, I go back and listen to that episode. Then I listen to the episode I recorded after they lost game 7. The tone's completely different. I didn't want to put readers, uh, li- readers, I want to put listeners through that. So I was like, fuck it, nah, I'm just going, Mm-mm. I'm going to wait this out. And then after I've done, processed what happened and it took a minute because I mean after they won the fourth game from behind I don't think I I, well, I was going to sleep anyway but I really didn't sleep I was just so wired I think I watched that come from behind win about 20 times in a row there's a 20 minute version that covers the ninth inning all the way through the 10th inning and I think I watched that shit 20 times in a row I kind of want to watch it again but yeah that was another thing that was happening. So, after the end of the summer 1988, another brief synopsis, I wrote, I decided to do this piece highlighting the highly influential events that occurred during the legendary summer of 1988 after it hit me. I did one of these last year, and quite frankly, the summer 1988 blew the summer 1987 out of the water. Next, I'm going to do an update of Independent as Fuck, highlighting the essential and classic independent rap EPs, albums, and compilations from 1998. And it says, follow me on Twitter and Instagram, plus listen to my podcast, Dart Against Humanity, and I have a link, Dart Against Humanity. Another thing happened with Dart Against Humanity. So, if you're listening to this, I record it on Anchor, and Anchor distributes it. So, when I go on Anchor, it tells me that I have 13 different distributors for the podcast but and I never look at numbers this is another thing I just fucking record the episode and then go on with my life uh, if you like it you like it if you don't 
you don't. As I said before, this podcast, it's, this isn't its final form. So I don't know exactly what it's going to become. I don't know what it's going to morph into. I don't know what's going to poke evolve into. I don't know if I'm ever going to have guests. I don't know if I'm going to start recording it in the studio. Actually, I recorded a podcast in the studio. Um, it's uh, it's like a podcast. I did that with um EJ Detweiler. I'm actually gonna link link it on um Twitter. And I'm probably gonna I'm gonna post it on because I listened to it on SoundCloud recently, on um, Instagram. But like he had a, he was in a in a setup, you know. They had a studio. They had mics. You know they live. They had a live feed. You know as they recorded the podcast. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. People take this shit seriously. Yeah, I should do that. But and the point I'm making is that. When I look through Anchor, it says I have 13 distributors. But when I look at all the numbers come in, which, again, I never do, it says other. And then there's this number. I'm like, what the fuck is other? It's like, there's other? Where's other? Who's other? So I decided to just check, right? So I go to this thing, and I'm like, all right, let me do some research on how many podcast uh, distributors there are. How many podcasting sites there are in existence? So I find I find a definitive list of them that are still working, that run, that people use. And I'm like, let me be curious and find out how many of them actually carry Dart Against Humanity without me ever actively trying to distribute it or uh, submit it to them. Like they just carry it because somebody else carries it. I discovered that this podcast is distributed on 20 different services. 20. I had no fucking clue. Now, the weirder part is that I'm talking into a phone walking around. And I, for the most part, don't think that anybody particularly cares to hear whatever the fuck I got to say. So I don't even think to check and look to see if it's there's a real reach. If there is, I'll find out later. Apparently there is because people are talking about, yo, I love this episode, I love this episode, I love this episode. But of course, I'm like, yeah, sure, I'm always doing something else. So it's like I kind of forget that happens or I'll respond on Twitter. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And I don't think about it again. But yeah, it's weird to know that, oh shit, people actually do listen to this. Because I'm me. I'm sick of hearing my voice right now. So I can't imagine people fucking actually voluntarily listening to me talk. I don't want to hear me talk. I want to punch me in the face right now. And I punch hard. Like, I know how to fight. I know that when you throw a punch... You don't close your fist until the last minute. So then you have all the kinetic energy just drawing all the way until that point of impact. So you have do the most damage possible. I know how to punch. I know how to strike. And how did we get to that? Oh, also it's raining. So it's hot as shit. I have my air conditioner on and it's raining outside. And I'm dressed like a thought walking in my living room, talking into a phone. 
So, that's covered. Yeah, man. But, one of the things that does kill me the most is that people don't do basic research, which I think I've mentioned this a million fucking times on this podcast already. So, today is also the 30th anniversary of... um. Not only the Crown Rulers album, Paper Chase, but also the NES game, Life Force. Life Force came out on Konami. Konami it was originally an art 1986 arcade game called Salamander. Now, the thing about Salamander slash Life Force is that it used the Konami code, just like all the other Konami games. Most people didn't know... The Konami code existed until it was printed in the first issue of Nintendo Power, which again I said was distributed or mailed out between likely between uh, July 18th to the 23rd, 1988, I believe. I think it was that Monday to that Saturday. I nailed that down as that's the date, the initial date that the first ones were mailed out. And I figured that like they got mailed out more and more over time. I was trying to figure out if they had this thing where they mailed them out first to people who are longtime Nintendo Fun Club members. Or if they did a raffle and did half them and half the new owners. And then they just went down the list. Or did they just go down the older people that have been around rocking with us the longest to the newer people? However they did it, I don't know how many issues they printed. I don't know if they did reprints. I know that they did put extra copies. They got to a point where they started putting the first issue in or reprinted the first issue in when you bought a new NES after a certain amount of time to like gateway drug, you know, this free, let me give you this free hit. And also they did that, something similar where they had this, um, this guide, this tips guide. They had uh, tips to 100 games and also had pictures of upcoming games towards the end of the um, holiday season, 87, 88. So that's another thing that like boosted sales and like got people really interested in the in in system. And then also it fed arcade, arcade goers. So like the arcades bo- boomed in early 88 and all throughout the summer of 88, which is also something I covered in the piece. But... When Life Force came out, it was the first game released where NES owners knew going in, oh shit, I can use that Konami code on this. Because, uh, just because they had just printed the Konami code didn't mean people didn't know it existed. People knew it existed. The word had gotten around to certain people. Not everybody knew. Like, some people kept the shit to themselves. It's like, yo... Try to connect Todd the code up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start. Did you? Oh, shit. Got, what? 30 lives? Oh, word. I could beat this. I feel like somebody found out by calling the tip line and started telling people because there was no way they were privy to what the programmers at Konami in Japan were doing in order to test the game. There's no way they could have known that. So I feel like somebody called the tip line, was told, and then spread it, but it didn't spread 
the way things would do in the day of the internet. It was just like something that was like an urban legend, damn near, that people spread around. And it turns out they're right. It was the same thing happened with the Justin Bailey code. The Justin Bailey code from Metroid, which we knew that there was a code where Seamus, first we thought it was a lie, a code where Seamus is a girl and is just wearing like a bathing suit. We're like, come on. Like, this is some horny white boy came with the shit. This ain't. And then you put in Justin Bailey and you're like, oh shit. For real? Now, and then something else I have to explain. The early days of having a Nintendo Entertainment System. First, we had to get to the point where we had games with passwords. Okay? They didn't always have passwords. So we had to get to the point where we had games with passwords. Then we got to games where you kind of needed to draw maps and keep passwords. So we started to have code books. I had a manila notebook, which would have been normally used for school, but I didn't give a fuck about school. Um, so I used it. My brother and I used it for Nintendo games. Nothing made me want to have neat handwriting than having to write down some motherfucking Nintendo code so I didn't fuck it up. Nothing improves your penmanship like writing Nintendo codes. Trust me on that. And nothing makes you want to care more about alliteration and personification and metaphor and simile than listening to rap albums all summer 1988. I don't give a fuck what poem you laid in front of me. I don't care if it was Keats. I don't care if it was Byron. I don't care if it was the bard himself, Shakespeare. After you listen to Eric B. and Rakim's Lyrics of Fury or No Competition, shit, or Big Daddy Kane, Ain't no half-stepping. Man. Or long live the cane. Shit, boy. That's going to make you want to really focus on all types of writing and, and poetry. Even more than any of the assignments that you could have given me in school. So, so 30 years ago would have been close to the end of my summer school experience. I think my summer school experience ended, no, I think it ended closer to me turning 13. But um, my summer school experience ended with me arguing with who was actually a kid who was actually my friend in summer school, this white kid named Steve. So it was Black Steve and White Steve. That's what they called this, right? Uh... No, 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 no. His name wasn't Steve. His cousin was Steve. His cousin, his cousin, White Steve, was in my homeroom. I don't remember. What was this fucking kid's name? He was Steve's cousin. This white kid with glasses. But we were in the same class. Only took one class, Latin. Because my brother forced me to. And it turns out that the teacher I had the first day, it turns out was this dude named Mr. Cahill. So my brother was like, shit, you're going to fail anyway. He was right. You weren't going to pass Mr. Cahill. So anybody who went to summer school that year... It didn't matter because you failed. You failed regardless. Because you had fucking Mr. Cahill. You, you, you couldn't win with him. So anyway, um, 
We got into an argument because my brother came back from Mount Vernon and told me all this crazy rap shit that he experienced. Because, again, my cousins in Mount Vernon all knew rappers because all their neighbors and friends were rappers. So that's just what she knew. And so my brother comes back and he tells me all these stories about guys coming back from tour and 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 doing this and working on new stuff and these new songs that he heard and the stuff that happened the stuff that's on the radio there and I'm just like yo that's crazy and I'm like telling the kid this and he thinks I'm lying he thinks I'm straight up lying like he's like your brother don't know no heavy D you know what I'm saying he didn't meet no big daddy Kane like why are you fucking lying? Like, why do you feel the need to lie constantly? Constantly just lie about this shit. And I'm like, I'm not lying. This is the truth. And so we fell out over that because he thought I was just pretty much talking out the side of my neck. It turns out, 30 years later, that all the stories my brother told me were in fact true. And... Is also part of the reason why I know so much about rap because I was around so many older people and people that did stuff and I was the young kid in the room a lot of the time who was privy to stuff that I shouldn't have been. But yeah, man. I have no idea what this episode was. But I feel like in another couple of days I'm going to come up with one that's actually something better than what this was. Not that this is necessarily bad, but I just don't know what the fuck this was. So I can't categorize it. Another thing is, after every episode, I have to name them. So typically when I go in knowing exactly what I'm doing, it's easier to name them. The last one, I didn't know what the fuck it was, and I ended it, and what I ended it with ended up being the name of it. And I don't want that to be something you expect. So this is funny because I don't know if this is one of those things where I'm trying to not do something consciously as opposed to just do something naturally, which is something that I always tell you guys I want to do. So I'm actually going against my own nature. It's like reverse psychology. But you can't do that shit to yourself. Also, I'm really trying to find a way to stop talking. And the best way to stop talking is just to stop talking. <laughs>